You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. This morning I want to continue our studies on the background of Christmas. We've been going through it together through Advent. This is our third week. As we follow the Bible story from creation through to the coming of Jesus Christ. And we've covered a couple of stories. The story of Noah and last week the story of Ruth. We've been following through a little book called The Advent Jesse Tree, and uh, I've certainly found it interesting. It had been happening on interesting Bible stories, the story of Josiah and finding the the Bible that the people had so got away from the Lord that in their worship they'd lost the scriptures. Um, But the Advent Jesse Tree follows that story of Christ through the Old Testament, beginning with the offspring of the woman who was promised to crush the serpent's head of evil, the Savior who's foreshadowed in the story of Noah saved from destruction, the Redeemer seen in the story of Ruth and Boaz, uh, the King who comes through David's line, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the Shepherd yesterday there we looked at, who would lead the people to safety. But today we come to a, a very mysterious prophecy about the coming Christ. Isaiah's prediction of the suffering servant as found in Isaiah chapter 53. And in it, we read one of the most powerful descriptions in the Old Testament of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, the message of the suffering servant is a difficult message to receive. And when Jesus was born, the people of Israel had difficulty receiving this message because they were looking for a champion, someone who could be a a strong leader, a conqueror, who could free them from the power of the oppressor, who could liberate them from the Roman Roman authority. But it, it wasn't just the people of Israel who were not open to this idea of, of a suffering servant, who were looking for this powerful deliverer. It was Jesus' own followers. They weren't looking for a suffering Savior. Do you remember the encounter with Peter in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, this shall never happen to you. Even his closest followers pushed back against this prediction of a suffering servant. They just couldn't understand how It could be, and yet this too is part of the story, even though they initially missed it. This is a key part, this is the key part of the story. The prophecy of a suffering servant who would give his life on behalf of others. I'm always moved when I read that story of the two on the Emmaus Road, those two disheartened friends who were leaving Jerusalem after the crucifixion and how they pour out their broken hearts to this unknown stranger, unrecognized stranger that they meet on their journey. Their despair that Jesus, the one that they hoped would liberate Israel, would redeem Israel, has been crucified. And then the Lord speaks these words to their confused hearts in Luke 24, and he said to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That Christ should suffer. I wonder 
if Jesus gave them an exposition on Isaiah 53. So turn in your Bible this morning to Isaiah 53. We'll follow it on the screen, and if you have the Bible, look it up. And I want to look together at the passage which was read. We'll look at most verses. For sake of time, we can't look at every verse. And actually, the passage, when they put chapters into our Bibles, um, sometimes it, it, it kind of gets into the idea of a, of, a, of a concept that's already been moving along for a little bit. So this concept in Isaiah 53 actually begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle or so shall he startle or the word can mean so shall he impact many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Then we come to Isaiah 53, verse 1, which begins with a question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? So the old version says, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So says Isaiah, here is this servant, the one who was disfigured and marred, but the one who is now lifted up and is highly exalted, the one whose life will impact, who will change many nations. Now Isaiah says, question number one, who has believed our message? Who has received this Messiah? Who has believed what was told to them? And then there's a second question. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In the scripture, the word the arm of the Lord means the strength of the Lord, God's power, his action. So to paraphrase Isaiah's question, here's two of them. Number one, who has believed God's message? And number two, who has experienced God's power? So says Isaiah, when the Messiah came, did they accept him? And the answer becomes painfully clear, very clear. Did they enthusiastically receive this Messiah? No, not many believed the message at all. Only a few recognized God's action. John chapter one, it says this, that Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So the question is, why? Why did they not hear the message? Why did they not see that this was God's power, that this was his strength? The answer is found in verse 2, Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant or a tender plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This was not the Messiah the people were looking for. They were looking for a mighty oak, not a twig. The people were looking for a powerful leader to overthrow the Romans. Jesus was a man of peace. He was a tender young plant, easily overlooked by the powerful of his day, crushed by the might of the Romans. He was a root out of a dry ground, born in the poverty of Bethlehem's manger, raised in a backwater village of Nazareth. There's a, an interesting story when, um, in John chapter 1 when Philip wants to bring his friend Nathaniel to meet Jesus, and Nathaniel hears where Jesus is from, and he says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Jerusalem is where kings should come from, not Nazareth. But there's more, a tender plant, a root out of a dry ground, but no beauty 
no majesty to attract us to him. No, obviously Jesus had a certain powerful beauty to his followers. I, I so enjoy those sessions, those uh, programs on the chosen, which really makes Jesus look so incredibly um, you know, attractive. But what it means here is there was no big fancy majesty. The people were looking for a leader who'd be marked by titles and riches and status, a regal conqueror on a mighty stallion, and instead they get a servant riding on a donkey. They wanted a king on a throne surrounded by courtiers, not a poor rabbi with a dusty group of followers. Why did they not hear the message? Why did they not see the power? I think the problem was their expectations. This was not what they expected of a Messiah. This was not the savior they had in mind. This was not how they expected God to work. You see, God often works in ways we don't understand. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. And let me make this very clear. He does not often fit into our expectations. God operates by a different standard. When God wants to form a new nation, does he call someone who has a great reputation? No. He calls Jacob the deceiver and he turns him into Israel. When God wants to free his people in Egypt from the mighty Pharaoh, who does he call? Someone who is a high official in the land? No, he calls an exile who is out in the desert, accused of murder, who has a stutter, and he says, go and tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. That was his man Moses. When the Savior is to be born, he doesn't call a wealthy princess from royalty. He visits Mary, a teenager from humble surroundings in Galilee, and Jesus is born. Expectations. They missed the Messiah, not because of his character, but because of their expectations. Here's a searching question for me this morning. Could I miss what God wants to do in my life because it doesn't line up with my expectations? Can I ask you that again? Could I miss what God wants to do in my life because it doesn't line up with my expectations? I came across an interesting quote and I couldn't find a source of it, but here it is. Someone has said, if we live with expectations, we will always be disappointed. If we live with expectations, we will always be disappointed. But if we live with expectancy, expectancy with what God can do, and what he will do, we will never be disappointed. That's good. The tender plant, the dry ground, the humility, the meekness, the Messiah came in a way they did not expect, and so they missed him. The kingdom of heaven has a different standard. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things and the despised things so that no one may boast before him. So let's come to verse 3. What is their final response? Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So even though the servant Messiah was God's word, he was God's power, he was despised. And he was rejected. It, it wasn't just that they passively ignored him. 
The fact was they actively responded in derision, despised and rejected. Cruel words. Right in the middle of Messiah, and I just this week I, I put on my Messiah CD and I, I listened through to it, and right in the middle there's this very powerful piece in Messiah where there's all these songs that come out of Isaiah 53. And this verse is included, and the singer almost hisses out the words, I won't try and sing it, I promise. He was despised and rejected, despised and rejected of men, despised to be seen of no value. They looked down on him, ignored him, derided him, mocked and taunted him, despised, rejected. That word cuts deep. It brings back memories to some of us of the childhood playground bullying. Reject, reject. As a child, we would shout back, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But of course, we knew that was nonsense. Those words did hurt, and they do hurt. Reject, despised and rejected of men. Look at how the Lord was despised and rejected by the religious establishment which did not condone what he was saying. They did not approve of him. Who gave you the authority they demanded? And when he stepped on their sensitivities, they were deeply offended. I guess the term is they were triggered. And what did they do? Matthew 12 verse 14 says, the Pharisees went out and plotted, how do we kill this man? Rejected. Rejected by his own community. You know, when Malcolm Gladwell, the New York Times best-selling writer, who used to live out in Caleb's house, when he comes to town, it's like a big deal. Malcolm has come. You know, it's a sense of excitement. He's a local boy who's made good, makes us proud. You know, we, we long for acceptance from our community. Maybe more than that, we need it. But in Mark chapter 6, there's a very interesting story of when Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth to speak in the local synagogue. How did the locals respond? Well, one of them said, isn't this the carpenter? In other words, isn't he just a common worker like the rest of us? Someone else said, isn't this Mary's son? Yeah, it is. We know Mary. He's one of Mary's boys. Aren't his sisters here? Yeah, sure they're here. Who does he think he is? And they took offense at him. Rejected. But it gets worse. He's rejected by his closest friends, betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, let down by those he loved and trusted the most, despised and rejected. No wonder he's described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Our Savior has experienced the deepest pain of any human, of what you could possibly go through. Hebrews 2 verse 10 says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And by enduring the suffering, he can completely identify with the pain that people go through, with the pain and grief that you experience. I don't know this morning, I, I would like to think coming up to Christmas, everybody is having a good time, but Miriam suggested that's not always the case. And sometimes it's little things like busy schedules, but sometimes it's big things. Weighed down with grief, weighed down perhaps even with rejection, with pain, with discouragement, with sorrow. But this I know, he is the man of sorrows and he understands our 
grief. There's an old hymn that goes like this, and every sorrow bears a part and feels it as his own. When we face trying times, times of rejection and grief, it's easy to wonder, does God really care or has he forgotten us? But he does care more deeply than any earthly parent cares for their children. He watches over you. He shares your joy in good times. He feels your pain and sorrow. God has not abandoned us. Even when you cannot feel his presence, he is with you. He loves you. Seeking to comfort you, he is the man of sorrows. He is familiar with suffering. He has been there. And he has given as his promise, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He will give you the strength to make it through. Come to verse 4. Now the words of Isaiah actually intensify. The sorrowing servant becomes the sacrificial servant. He becomes the crucified Savior. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him. The word means we considered him. We thought of him. Yet we considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah says, before we go further, I want to clear up a misunderstanding that some people have about Jesus' death. The misunderstanding was that when they saw Jesus crucified, they assumed he was being punished for his own sin. They considered him under God's affliction, but their opinion was misguided. Their consideration was an incorrect assumption. The suffering servant was not dying for his own sin. He did not have any sin to die for. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He died for the sins of others. He carried our infirmities, our weaknesses, our sorrows. He was under God's affliction, not for his sin, but for mine. Now follow these sober words, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. These words bring us right to the foot of the cross with all its ugliness and all its wonder. We hear the hammer slam down on that iron peg. We see the victim lurch in pain as the nail crushes through the flesh and the bone. We see the spear pierce his side. We see the blood, we see the fluid flow from that deep gaping wound. This is humanity at its worst. The conspiracy of self-righteous religion with self-serving politics, the bloodlust of the mob, the crowd, and the cold, calculating work of the soldiers just doing their job. Pierced, crushed, punished. The powers of darkness had done their worst, the ugliness of crucifixion, but in the midst of the pain, God was at work. Our transgressions forgiven. Our iniquities covered, our peace purchased. We are healed, made new, new creatures in Christ. This is the wonder of the cross. This is what we call and we glory in, the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ. That on the cross, he took our sin. He became our substitute. He took our punishment. He died our death so that we might go free. 
You know, the greatest theologians have struggled to understand this. The New Testament writers try to describe it. 2 Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Peter said, for Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He continues, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The children's hymn writer puts it so well when she writes, we may not know, we cannot tell what pain he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. John Stott has said this, that every Christian can echo these words. There is healing through his wounds. There is life through his death. There is pardon through his pain. There is salvation through his suffering. Now come with me to verse six. This is the, 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 the pivot point of Isaiah 53, a critical, critical verse, because it applies more than any other to me and to you. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The cross reminds me that sin is real and it's ugly. It crucified Jesus. The depth of the suffering that Christ endured reminds me that sin is serious. We live in a society where sin has become a joke something for comedians to kind of poke fun at. And yet, we see the ugly marks of sin everywhere we turn. Broken homes, rage, hatred, lust, murder, violence, war. Sin is no joke. Sin is serious. It separates us from each other, it puts us in bondage to self, and it alienates us from God. This verse has a truth which we find, which I find, difficult to fully absorb. That we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is a hard truth. Notice the one word, all. Sin affects all of us. We have all gone astray. We have all turn to our own way. And listen, all includes me. And it was for all our sin that Jesus died, for my sin and for yours. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The bad news is all have gone astray. The good news is mercy is available to all who will receive it. You know, sometimes when I'm feeling a little smug and self-righteous, I like to imagine that all the serious sinners are out there. When I hear of a drunken brawl or when I hear of a shootout between some rival outlaw gangs, I can feel comfortable that sin is out there. We imagine that sin, particularly serious sin, only happens to someone else. Can't possibly happen to me. But notice what Isaiah says. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. I don't know if we have any sheep farmers here, but how do sheep go astray? 
Sheep farmers tell me they go astray one blade of grass at a time. They see a tuft over there, and then the one over there is so tempting, and the grass on the other side of the fence is so green, and before they know what has happened, they are far from home and hopelessly lost. How do people go astray? Good people. Well, it's a little temptation here, it's a little justification there. It's a little feeling of entitlement over here. That green grass looks so sweet. And soon we are far from home and hopelessly lost. Charles Colson tells the story of Adolf Eichmann. He was the um, chief architect. You see him there with his hat on when he looks so prim and proper. He was one of the chief uh, architects of the Nazi Holocaust. His responsibility was building and running the Nazi death camps. And through his efforts, millions of innocent people died. After the war, Eichmann escaped from Germany and made his way to Argentina, but the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence, was on his trail. And in 1961, they captured him, brought him to Israel, where he was tried, and where he was the only person in the history of the Israeli state who died by capital punishment. After Eichmann was, was executed, they got rid of capital punishment. Haven't had another one since. What kind of a man was Eichmann? A monster, a madman, a lunatic? At his trial, something very strange happened. There was various people came in each day. And one day, a man came in to be in the visitor's gallery. He was a concentration camp survivor. And he looked at Eichmann and he collapsed on the floor, and they had to carry him out. The survivor's name was Yehel Dinner. Yehel Dinner was later interviewed on national television, and the reporter asked him, what, what was going on there? Were you collapsed in the courtroom? Were you filled with anger? And he said, no. He actually gave a very haunting answer. He said, no, I, I was overcome with how ordinary he looked. He was just a little man like me. I was overcome with emotion because it suddenly hit me, if that little man is capable of such behavior, I wonder if I am capable of doing it too, for I look just like him. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, it is very difficult to read book. I've tried to plow through it. The Gulag Archipelago, which tells of his time in the Russian death camp, says this, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You see, Isaiah's unpopular diagnosis is still accurate. We all have gone astray. Each of us turns to his own way. The issue of sin is serious, and the issue of sin is universal. But the good news of the cross is that our sin can be forgiven through what Christ has done, through what the man of sorrows has done. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was for my sin he died. It was my guilt that nailed him to the cross. You've heard me quote this before, but it deserves another quote from Tim Keller. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. 
yet at the very same time more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Let me ask you a very personal question this morning, a very serious question. Have you ever discovered this shocking truth that I am sinful and flawed, that I go astray, but, and this is even more important, have you personally realized it was for me he died? That the Lord laid on Christ my iniquity, my sins, my flaws. And you know, at its very core, this is the gospel. This is where our Christian faith begins. Come to verse 7. I'm overcome at the powerful example of Christ as he goes through this suffering, how he refuses to return evil for evil. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked. He died between two criminals, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. But he was buried in the tomb of a rich man in his death. A wealthy friend laid him in his own rock-hewn tomb. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. These are mysterious words. Even though the evil powers conspired to do their worst by nailing Christ to the cross, this is not a surprise to God. God in his sovereign will allows that most gruesome and miserable act of injustice to bring forgiveness and atonement to all who will believe, to declare us righteous, to cover our sin. It is God's glory to take the worst that evil man can do and use it to bring forgiveness to the many. God can transform the worst of situations. He brings light out of darkness. He brings healing out of suffering. The apostolic message of Peter on the day of Pentecost was this. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross, but God raised him from the dead. Come to the second half of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. For the servant, suffering was not the end of the story. There was offspring, there was a new generation, there was future blessing. The suffering was not in vain. Built into this prophecy is the hope of new life, of resurrection. The cross was not the end, the resurrection was coming. The best was yet to come. His days would be prolonged, his days would be renewed. And beyond the resurrection lay the ultimate victory of the servant. Because of his obedience even to death, he is exalted. Come to verse 12. The suffering servant is now the victorious Savior. And we have this poetic declaration of victory. Therefore, says Isaiah, I will divide him a portion with the many or with the great or with the victorious. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. Remember what Jesus told them on the Emmaus Road. Suffering first, then Glory. The one who suffered is given the place of honor among the great. 
The one who is despised and rejected now shares the prize, the spoils, with all who join in his victory. From a fearful group of disciples who fled in terror and locked themselves in an upper room and hid behind those doors, the church has grown from that little group of people to millions of followers of Jesus Christ who acknowledge him as Savior and Lord, the suffering servant is now the victorious Savior. And this day, as we gather here, we gather together with, I was going to say, dozens of different cultures and nations and, and languages, but I, I suppose it's hundreds all around the world. Follow me around the world from a small church in an African village where they're hopping up and down and praising the Lord to a large cathedral with very proper worship in London, England to a house church in China that's really banned, but they meet anyhow, to a mega church in New York City. The followers of the despised and rejected man of sorrows join arms all around the world and share in his victory. I was thinking about it this week. The mighty Roman Empire has long since fallen. The sun has set on the British Empire. Powerful Nazism and fascism is just a bitter memory. Communism has been tried and found wanting. But the church of Jesus Christ remains. And when we remain in Christ, we share in his victory. Jesus, the suffering servant, the suffering savior, is now forever Lord. I love Philippians 2. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place. And has given him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm always moved by Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, in the quiet of this moment, we bow in worship. We raise our hearts in thankfulness and wonder that the one who is so high, so great, so worthy of honor, made himself so low that the Son of God suffered so much that he became the man of sorrows for our salvation, for my salvation. But you have raised him from the dead and he is exalted and he is Lord forever. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and your paths beyond tracing out for from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.